Zechariah chapter 14. I'd like to preach a message this evening entitled Lessons from Earthquakes. Lessons from Earthquakes. And, uh, you know, often older preachers caution younger preachers about not taking all your sermons from the headlines. But here's one thing about headlines is they grab people's attention. And we say that the Bible gives us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, and we want to know how to view things with a biblical perspective. And so when something happens, like what happened six days ago in Turkey, I think it's very important for us to ask the question, what kind of perspective can we gain from the Bible when something of that nature, a natural disaster, takes place? And so I want us to do some thinking about earthquakes this evening through the lens of Scripture. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14, this is a a prophecy. Uh, Zechariah lived uh, just before the 400 silent years, the gap, if you would, of silence, as we call it, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was a part of the return and the reconstruction of the city and the temple there in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And he's giving prophecy in chapter number 14 and uh, verses 1 down to verse number 5 on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we believe that the Bible teaches in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus in what's called the rapture, that at any moment, Jesus could come again. Imminent, at any time. And I believe the Bible teaches that very clearly. He'll rapture believers to heaven. We will be there in heaven while on earth a period of seven years takes place that the Bible describes as the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. And he is describing, Zechariah is describing the Lord's return after that tribulation period where God will judge the earth for their rejection of Christ. And you'll see the mention of earthquakes come up. But I want you to notice something that Zechariah does. Zechariah chapter 14, verse number 1. Behold... The day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil, he's talking to the city of Jerusalem, shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Uh, In part, this will be God's judging of the nation of Israel, and it will also be God gathering together all of these rebel nations against Jerusalem so that he can once and for all deal with these rebel nations who hate Israel. The city shall be taken and the houses rifled, And the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off, or shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. If you want a parallel of that, Revelation 19. That wonderful chapter that describes the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When those of us saints who've already been taken to be with him, we will come with him riding on white horses when he will take care of once and for all the armies of the earth who've come against Jerusalem and who've rebelled against him. I'm not much of a horse person, but I am looking forward to that horse ride. Okay. Verse number four, and his feet, talking about the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. When we were there in May, we stood 
uh, on the eastern side of the city and could look out across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. And it's quite an imaginary or imagination exercise, if you would, to envision the Lord Jesus Christ touching down with his feet on the top of the Mount of Olives. You'll stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley. What is fascinating is there is a fault line that runs north and south, parallel, if you would, with the Mount of Olives and the Kidron Valley, but when Jesus touches down, there's going to be an earthquake that's going to rend the Mount of Olives, split it against the fault line. Okay. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south, and he shall flee. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach into Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled, notice this, from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all saints with thee. Now, that is going to be an indescribably wonderful time when Jesus comes again. Church-age saints will be coming with him. But what I want us to notice, without going to great depth as far as all the prophecy here, what I want you to notice is that uh, Zechariah referred to an earthquake that took place in the days of King Uzziah, okay, and said that how people responded in that earthquake that took place in the days of King Uzziah is how people are going to respond when the earthquake takes place when Jesus comes again. What did he do? He took an actual earthquake in history and used it to help prepare people for an earthquake that's coming in the future. Okay. So lessons from earthquakes. And I want to do tonight exactly what Zechariah did in this passage of scripture. And I want us to use an earthquake to learn some lessons about our God and the word. Let's pray. Father, As we look into several passages of Scripture this evening, I pray that you would help us to calibrate our thinking as we've been, many of us, keeping up with the news and our hearts getting heavier as the death toll mounts and we see the destruction and we even think of believers that are there that we now know of who've uh, experienced this difficulty. And God, I pray that you would give us a heart tonight to view earthquakes and natural disasters like this through a biblical lens. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How easily we forget soon after tragedies like this take place. Several days ago, when the death toll was in the mid-20s, I was doing some reading on it and found that the earthquake in Turkey, as bad as it was, had still not made it into the list of the top 10 deadliest earthquakes in the last 50 years. Okay. In uh, July of 1976, an earthquake in China claimed 655,000 lives. Many of you remember the January 2010 earthquake in Haiti, 316,000 lives. I had not heard a lot about this one. Uh, I think it may be connected to the December, the Christmas uh, earthquake of 2004, 
in the Adaman Islands in the Indian Ocean, 283,000 people. In May of 2008, an earthquake took place in China, 87,600 souls going into eternity. October of 2005, an earthquake in Pakistan, 86,000. And those are just the top five. As of today, with the death toll now topping 30,000, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria has now moved onto that top 10 list in number eight or nine range. I did not know this, but do you know that there are 55 earthquakes per day worldwide? At totals, if you do the multiplication, 20,000 earthquakes a year. Obviously, ones of the magnitude we've witnessed in Turkey get our attention. But earthquakes, 55 a day worldwide. As of the last count that I saw late this afternoon, 33,000 people have perished. It's number eight or nine on the list of the 10 deadliest in my lifetime, the last 47 to 50 years. I read that there are 110,000 rescuers from two dozen or more countries who've traveled to Turkey. Almost 6,000 pieces of excavating equipment. And so the world has rallied in many ways to provide humanitarian aid. Sadly, this earthquake is already being politicized. There are elections in Turkey in May, and there are those who are already using this against President Erdogan. And he's trying to defend himself, even though he's admitting there were some mistakes that were made. What is sad but ironic is that 20-some years ago when he came into power, it was right after another earthquake in Turkey, 1999, that claimed just under 20,000 lives. And he used the incompetency of the government in 99 in responding to the earthquake as a platform for him to get into office. And now, in irony, it's being used against him. As I've read the headlines and I've thought about earthquakes as a natural disaster, I've been motivated to do two things, and this is where we begin to make application in our lives. The first, obviously, is to look at Scripture. How would the Bible have us to think and view and process earthquakes? What are some things that we can use the occurrence of earthquakes to do to motivate us in our lives as believers? The second thing that I've done is I've done study and reading on earthquakes. About a year ago, I paid maybe 50 cents for this little reprint, a little green book. And the title of the book is Narratives of the San Francisco Earthquake and Fire of 1906. It's been a fascinating read. I'm not all the way through it. But I wanted to make sure, because of how easily we forget these things, Am I the only one? I'm, I'm, I'm not in any way criticizing or accusing, but do you notice how quickly we forget these things? Hundreds of thousands of lives in these natural disasters, and we almost become numb to them. And I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to recur. And so I'm looking at the scriptures 
and then I'm reading. This is a, the 12 individuals who experienced that 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, California, and the resulting fire. I'll say a little bit more about it in the course of the message. I was sharing with uh, someone before the message this morning that Jonathan Edwards, the a preacher of the Second Great Awakening in New England said that uh, every preacher, when he preaches a message, should strive to make a single indelible impression. And I want us to be impressed indelibly about how to view earthquakes biblically and how to think about them biblically, truths that we should be reminded of the next time an earthquake happens. Truths to recall when earthquakes occur, number one. Earthquakes should remind us that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. We just saw the passage in Zechariah chapter 14. Revelation, the book of Revelation, six different times, five different times in Revelation. Chapter number 6, verse number 12. Chapter number 8, verse number 5. Chapter number 11, verse number 13. Verse number 19. And Revelation chapter 16 and verse number 18. I'm not going to take the time to turn there. But earthquakes remind us that Jesus is coming again, that this old world, under the curse of sin, get it, is not going to last forever. Jesus is coming again. And that leads me to a second thing we should remember when earthquakes take place. Not only is Jesus coming again, but number two, this present earth is under the curse of sin. Now I'm driving towards a point here. I want you to look with me at Romans chapter number 8, verse number 22. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 22. By the way, just a little side note here. I don't know what you've maybe thought about this before, but we often talk about man being cursed and humanity being cursed when man sinned in the garden of Eden. Do you know that the Bible does not say that man was cursed? Now, we experience the consequences of it in physical and spiritual death, but only the serpent was cursed and the earth was cursed. Notice, if you would, Romans chapter 8, verse number 22. The Apostle Paul, and this is a great chapter when it comes to uh, reminding us of the victory that we have and the future that we have secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice notice Romans 8, 22. For we know that, read the next three words, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but we ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, talking about believers, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And I want you to notice this evening that the Apostle Paul makes it clear that when things like this happen, we need to be reminded that this old world is groaning and travailing under the curse of sin. In one sense, it indicates to us, and this is what Jesus will deal with when he comes again, it indicates to us that this earth and the Christ-rejecting inhabitants of this earth are ripe for God's judgment. But on the other hand, as we think about earthquakes reminding us that this present earth is under a curse, 
it should stir hope within us. And Paul even mentions that in verse number 24, immediately after talking about the whole creation groaning and travailing, verse number 24, Romans 8, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is not, or the hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why did he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? What are we waiting for that we can't see right now? Jesus to come again. Jesus to make all things right. The point is this, as we think about Jesus coming again and this present earth being under a curse and earthquakes being a demonstration of this world uh, being in a state of decline, the second law of thermodynamics is this, the earth is not going to and it is not meant to last on its present course. With hope, we look to the future and we praise God that Jesus is going to come and God and Jesus are going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Thirdly, as we think about earthquakes, and this is very sobering to me. Go with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. just a moment, we'll read these verses. But a third lesson that we learn from earthquakes that we can be reminded of is this, is that as tragic as deaths in an earthquake are, I'm not in any way minimizing those. Many times one of the reasons they catch our attention is because of the circumstances of the earthquake, the violence of a natural disaster, and then the sheer quantity of people whose lives are taken. But as tragic as deaths in an earthquake are, we do well to be reminded that death is the common future of everyone. You say, Pastor, that's not very good news. I'm glad for the gospel. That's the good news. Amen. But I want you to notice Jesus' perspective on this. Look at Luke chapter 13. There were present at that season some that told him, Jesus, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Here was an injustice that Pilate, the governor of Judea and Galilee, had perpetrated against the Jews. He had brutally slaughtered these Galileans. He took their blood and mingled it with their sacrifices at some worship in Jerusalem. Verse number 2, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? He's asking a question. What's the answer to the question? Because these guys died violent death in a slaughter, does that mean they were worse sinners than any other Galilean? Understood answer? No. He goes on, verse number 3, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. What's Jesus saying? He goes, everybody's going to die. Verse number four, or these 18, Jesus now brings up another instance on his own, or these 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, construction accident, and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all that dwelt in Jerusalem? Understood answer? No. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided salvation for those that repent? But what's he saying? He's saying everybody's going to die, and if you're not careful, you focus on the way that a person dies and fail to focus on the inevitability of everybody dying and what every man must do in order 
to get this in order to have the hope of eternal life beyond the grave. Except you repent, everybody's going to die. Except you repent, everybody's going to die because of their sin. And so as tragic as these deaths are in an earthquake, we need to be reminded that death is the common future of all, and Jesus' instruction is repent and be ready. If you don't know Christ as Savior, repent and be ready. Just because a person dies a violent death doesn't mean they're a worse sinner than anyone else. We look at some of the heart-rending stories and pictures of the deaths that people experienced. I think probably the one that gripped my heart the most was a father whose 15-year-old daughter had traveled to be with grandparents in one of the cities that was majorly affected by the earthquake. And when he got there, she had been staying with her grandparents, and he found her crushed in the debris, and the only thing showing was her hand. And the picture, it went viral, the picture of that father just sitting down there under the weight of grief, holding the hand of his 15-year-old daughter. By the way, our hearts need to be moved when we see things like that. Because every person that dies physically, they go into eternity. And so the teaching of Jesus becomes all the more paramount. Repent, believe the gospel, regardless of how a person is going to die, be ready. Number four, when we think about earthquakes, another lesson. And this one, it was fascinating for me to put this together. Did you know that the key components of the gospel were all accompanied by earthquakes? It says, if God used earthquakes to emphasize the importance of the gospel, you say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? Now, we're going to look in Hebrews chapter 12 in just a moment. Do you know that the giving of the law, the Bible says that when God gave the law at Mount Sinai in 1400, approximately 1400 B.C., that his voice, when he spoke, shook the earth. An earthquake at the giving of the law. Here is God's perfect standard. It was never given by God with the intention that a man in obeying it could attain righteousness worthy of eternal life. In fact, Galatians makes it clear the purpose of the law was to show man his sin, that he could not keep the perfect law of God and attain righteousness. And as if to add an exclamation point to that, when God, Almighty God, gave the law, an earthquake accompanied the giving of the law in the Sinai wilderness. Look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. In verse number 50. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Remember those final cries. It is finished. And Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Verse number 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, indicative of the fact that it was God that rent that veil from top to bottom, opening up access for believers into the immediate presence of God, demonstrating, illustrating that man, because of the work of Christ as our great high priest, would not have to go through another priest ever in order to get into the presence of God. Every child of God now is a believer priest who has immediate access to the presence of God. What a motivation to pray. And so the veil of the temple, verse 51, was rent in twain from top to bottom, and the earth did what? Quake. 
And the rocks rent, Grace and I were talking about this this afternoon, and she remembered hearing a preacher years ago, a missionary, I believe it was, say that uh, he reminded folks, you know, the Lord said that if these, if these children are silenced and not allowed to praise God, then God is able of the rocks to raise up those who will praise him, those who will acknowledge him. And here the rending of these rocks makes our mind go back to that. Here are these people standing at the foot of the cross who have crucified him. They refused to acknowledge who he was. And so God, true to his word, had the rocks give testimony through their quaking that this is God in the flesh on the cross. Verse 52, I hope they have replay of this in heaven. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. These are Old Testament believing saints who had died physically in hope of the coming Messiah. And I love this. The Lord allowed them to briefly resurrect so that they could give witness with their own eyes to what they had died believing that the Messiah would come as the sin-bearing substitute. Verse 53, they came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Do you know what puzzles me? Uh, If somebody came to you who you were at their funeral a few weeks before, I'd say that'd get your attention, wouldn't you? It should. And yet, as you remember from Luke 16 last week, and as we remember from the... Ongoing history of Jerusalem, even though things like this happened, the people in that day still refused to trust Christ, so many of them. Verse number 54, now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, this truly, this was the Son of God. So get this, the giving of the law, an exclamation point of an earthquake. The death of Jesus Christ, get this, who in his life perfectly fulfilled the law, in his death satisfied the penalty of the law, emphasized by an earthquake. Look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 28. Verse number one, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to draw toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great, what do you know? Earthquake. I love this. I hope there's a replay of this one too, especially to see the response of the soldiers guarding the tomb. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. So here's this earthquake. Verse number three, his countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake. Not only was there an earthquake, but there was a soldier shake too. They became his dead men. So an earthquake as an emphasis, an exclamation point on the resurrection. The key components of the gospel, the giving of the law, God's perfect standard, but man's inability to keep it. The cross of Christ, where in his perfect life, Jesus fulfilled the law, and in his death, he satisfied the penalty of the law. And then earthquake as an exclamation point at his resurrection to just send the message that this is God who is at work here. The cross testified to man that Jesus' penalty was paid through the shedding of Christ's blood. The emptying of the tomb, as Paul would say in Romans chapter number 3, he raised for our what? Justification. God is satisfied. And the earth shook. 
And so as we think about earthquakes and their significance in the scripture and what they should remind us of, the key components of the gospel were accompanied by earthquakes. Jesus is coming again. Every time an earthquake takes place, Jesus is coming again. The present earth is under a curse. Death is the common future of us all, regardless of the means, and so men need to repent. But I want you to notice, fifthly, and I get this from Acts chapter number 16. This is the account of Paul and Silas in jail, another earthquake. We're not going to turn there this evening, but you remember that Paul and Silas at night were praising God and singing at midnight, and God sent an earthquake, and it was the only good jailbreak in the history of humanity. And none of the prisoners left. They stayed. And it's a twofold testimony. The first is this, is that God cares for his own. Even earthquakes remind us of that. God cares for his own. He's working on behalf of Paul and Silas. But also this, he can use things like an earthquake to get unbelievers' attention and turn them to God. This book that I've been reading and other accounts, it's fascinating how natural disasters have a profound way of turning people's attention to God. And so let me say this, as it relates to what we've just witnessed, pray that God will use the after effects of this earthquake to bring people to himself. That God will use the ministry of men like Michael Garamy and others to be able to have a profound impact on those who are in such need right now. They remind us that God is sovereign, that God loves, that God cares. Things like this make people think. They make men turn to God. They make men testify of the power of God. And may I say this too, things like this tenderize the hearts of people. This book has been fascinating, these 12 eyewitness accounts, and the consistent testimony in 1906, April the 18th, 1906, five in the morning, a significant earthquake shaking the, um, the peninsula that is the city of San Francisco. And a, a number of people, they, they did lose their lives in the initial earthquake, But what ended up happening that really compounded the difficulty and the tragedy is that gas lines broke and 52 different fires broke out in the city of San Francisco that merged into three, that merged into one, and driven by winds from the Pacific Ocean, burned 80% of the city of San Francisco. 80%. The eyewitness testimonies, though, were almost unanimous in how quiet people were and in how kind people were. Do you know what struck me? The Bible says all of us are made in the image of God. Now, sinners, yes, is that image marred? But do you know what's amazing about tragedies is that it brings to the surface the compassion of the image of God within us. Now, let me say this about an earthquake or natural disaster. It level, it's a great equalizer. When it comes to rich and poor, it's a great equalizer. 
But the humanitarian, the generosity, the kindness, the literally over three days, most of the population of San Francisco was ferried across the bay to Oakland, and they joked and said that the population of Oakland doubled overnight. People taking complete strangers into their home. And so even out of these tragedies, get this, there's tremendous demonstration of the image of God within people. Crime was almost non-existent in 1906. The main accounts of any looting that took place were when grocery store owners, realizing that my store's probably going to burn anyway, literally opened up the doors as everybody was fleeing and said, come in and get what you need because it's all going to be ashes in a little bit anyway. And the law enforcement testified very little criminal activity took place even though there was great vulnerability. And all of this I should bring back around to just remind us that at times like this, we need to be thinking of the fact that God cares for his own. But sixthly and finally, as we think about a biblical perspective of earthquakes, 55 of them a day, 20,000 a year, some very, very difficult and tragic like the one we just saw, and that is this. Earthquakes should remind us to cling to those things and that one that cannot be shaken. I want us to consider two passages of Scripture, and then we'll go to a conclusion. Would you go to Psalm chapter 46? Psalm chapter 46. These are the sons of Korah. What is significant about the sons of Korah, descendants of that Korah that the earth opened up and swallowed him alive, along with Dathan and Abiram, and yet his children survived. And notice the teaching that they give us about the trust we can have in God, even when the things of this earth are shaken. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah, think about this. There's a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the whole Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early, talking about the heavenly city. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. What are God's people to remember? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Earthquakes, when they occur, should be a reminder to us to fasten our lives to the things that cannot be shaken. The final passage, notice if you would, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and verse number 25 author of Hebrews, 
warning these Jewish believers not to go back on their profession of faith in Christ. He is their Messiah, and yet some of them under the heat of persecution are thinking about backing away from their profession of faith in the Lord. Verse number 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the final capstone of God's revelation. Don't refuse Jesus and what he has said. For if they escaped who not, who refused him that spake on the earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. He's talking about those that rejected the law and the voice of God giving the law. If they didn't escape, then those who reject the voice of Christ, they're not going to escape either. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. He's talking about the making of a new heaven and a new earth when he comes the second time. Verse number 27, And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, a great sifting, a great sorting. And in the Word of God, get this, we're given a, a, a standard, if you would, by which we can judge the things that can't be shaken from the things that can be shaken. The things that have eternal value in distinction from the things that do not have eternal value. Verse number 28, Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved, and all God's people said, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Cling to what cannot be shaken. What a lesson to be reminded of even as we think of earthquakes and their occurrence. Because this whole earth is on a downward spiral to judgment and destruction. But there's a day coming when Jesus is going to make all things new and we need to cling to him and his kingdom and the things that cannot be shaken. The only major building that survived the San Francisco earthquake, both the earthquake and the following fire, was the United States Mint building in San Francisco. It's quite a... The place where they produce riches, right? Where they make the money, where they now hit start on a copy machine and run off more dollars and devalue everything else, right? It's quite a story how those men, just a few weeks before the San Francisco earthquake, having no idea what was coming, they literally had tapped into an artesian well directly under the mint and had their own water system in the event of a, very, a thing like that happening. They were able to save the building, to save all of the money that was there. And it's interesting, the before and after pictures, you can see the before pictures. Here's the U.S. Mint and these tall buildings, multiple stories all around it before. After, it's as if the U.S. Mint building is sitting there in the midst of a desolate landscape all by itself. Let me tell you something. We need to fasten our lives to the heavenly mint. The, the place where eternal riches are produced and held. Because those things cannot be shaken. 
When earthquakes come, tremendous lessons for us to keep in mind. I close with this, and we're going to sing an a cappella song here in just a moment. It's hymn number 619 in your hymn books if you want to go ahead and look it up. I'll tell you the story behind it as you're turning there. Many of us watched closely, and though this doesn't have to do with earthquakes, it has to do with tornadoes. Many of us watched closely in December of 2021 when a massive cell of tornadoes swept across the southern Midwest and the Ohio Valley. The four states were impacted the most heavily, Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, and Illinois. Eighteen individual tornadoes in Kentucky alone, massive tornadoes. I don't remember the death toll, but a story came out of it that gripped the nation. A man by the name of Jordan Bays, who was a believer in Christ and also a gospel music piano player, Jordan Bays knew the tornado was coming. With his family, he went into the basement and rode out the tornado. When he came up out of the basement, they dug out of the rubble. The roof of his house was entirely gone. As they were sifting through the rubble, he pulled some things away and noticed that his piano was still standing in the very spot where it always sat over in the corner of the living room. Not a gratitude for the Lord, sparing him and his family, and just to remind himself that God is sovereign and on the throne and to fasten his life and his thinking to the things that remain even when everything else around us shakes. Jordan Bays, in a moment of personal worship and gratitude, sat down at a piano that had been soaked in rain and was terribly out of tune. And he began to play a hymn written by Bill and Gloria Gaither in 1970. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about that name. He didn't know that his sister was videoing him as he sat there in a moment of personal worship, and yet God used the testimony of one man clinging to the things that cannot be shaken to profoundly impact our nation at a time of great difficulty and tragedy. The precious name of Jesus remains when all else falls away. Father, thank you for how you've encouraged my heart, how you've challenged me, burdened my heart for those in Turkey and Syria who've experienced this recent tragedy. And I pray, God, that you'd help us not to soon forget what we've witnessed, what we've heard about, 
If we can be a help in any way, I pray, God, that you would direct us. Think about Ryan's contact with Michael Garamy and that opportunity. To think about how we can be the touch of Christ thousands of miles away in the life of those who are hurting. I pray for believers there in Turkey who we know are burdened to share the gospel of Christ with those around them. And God, I pray that there would be a great tenderness among those who are there now. And it just thrills our heart to think about getting to heaven and hear people being saved when their hearts were turned to the Lord in a time of difficulty like this. So God, help us to look at things like this through the lens of the scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name.